But since its foundation in 1884, in a small billiards room in Thurles on a November Saturday, the Gaelic Athletic Association has considered itself, at least some of its members, and particularly some of its leading officials, have considered it as being much more than merely a sporting organisation. And a twinkling of an eye, the Dublin forward had the ball in the net. Out comes Christy Ring. He doubles on it. It's gone in and it's over the ball for the point. Here comes Sherry Cameron. Goal for Tipperary. Here he comes to win the All-Ireland Cupston. Hi, welcome to GAA in the Capital, a new media project from the Washington, D.C. Gales. We'll be looking at topics near and dear to the club, so anything to do with the GAA and Gaelic games and the culture that surrounds them. For the first episode, we figured it'd make sense to address the very organization that we represent, the GAA. For a lot of folks, especially Americans who join hurling and Gaelic football clubs, those three letters on our jerseys don't really mean much to us beyond the local clubs that we represent. But the GAA is an organization with a lot of really interesting history, and it's always good to know where you came from. So today, a look at the history of the GAA with Paul Rouse, a historian at the UCD School of History. What is the GAA? And as questions go, that's as big a question as you could possibly <laughs> ask in, in so few words. Well, GAA, the, the, the letters which appear on people's jerseys and on, on footballs and on, on, on uh, slitters, stands for Gaelic Athletic Association, or to give it its full title, the Gaelic Athletic Association for the Preservation and the Cultivation of the National Pastimes. That is to say, Ireland's National Pastimes, so-called. There are four games that are official games within the Gaelic Athletic Association. There is football, Gaelic football, which the GAA invented and produced its rules for in January uh, 1885. There is the game of hurling, which in Irish, in myth and Irish history, hurling extends back through history and back into myth thousands of years. And we'll come back to that again, I'm sure. And there are two other games um, which will which are played or which are designated as the games of the Gaelic Athletic Association, which are handball, which is uh, familiar to most people, and uh, rounders is the fourth official game, very rarely played within or very seldom played within GA clubs, but it's an official game, um, not unlike uh, baseball, of course. Um, and within the Gaelic Athletic Association, the Gaelic, all players within the Gaelic Athletic Association are male. Uh, in terms of the strict sense of the association, but it is two sister organizations who are integrated into a one family GEA, but are separate organizations. They are the Camogie Association, which is the Camogie being the name given to women's hurling, and the Ladies Gaelic Football Association. The idea that the word ladies should be appended to it rather than women is quite interesting, but it is the Ladies Gaelic Football Association which plays a variation of Gaelic football rules. So they are the broad church of games that are produced and, and presented within the Gaelic Athletic Association. But since its foundation in 1884, in a small billiards room in Thurles uh, on a November Saturday, the Gaelic Athletic Association has considered itself, at least some of its members, and particularly some of its leading officials, have considered it as being much more than merely a sporting organisation. It's seen 
as being a wider expression uh, of Irishness uh, as being directly related to Irish identity and ultimately to the idea that Ireland should be uh, an independent republic with its own with its own culture, its own pastimes, and that Gaelic sports would sit beside Irish music and, and a restored Irish language within the broader um, within the state, uh, an independent state, and that in all of this again, that the the the, the GAA would be would, would would thrive at every level, every corner in the country, and be open to all. And so that kind of covers the early days of the organization itself. Uh, but what did the sports of hurling and Gaelic football look like at that point? That is uh, that is a brilliant question. What did they look like? And let's take let's break it down into two parts. Let's look first of all at the game of hurling. Now, the game of hurling is presented as something that doesn't extend just through Irish history, as I said, but back into myth. This was the game that was played by Finn McCool and and by Satanta and by everything to do with that, according to the legend and, and the myth. And it's there in Irish myth- mythology, extending back thousands of years in the stories of it. For exa- example, the great Irish hero, Cú Cullen, was presented, his heroism was presented as a, a, as a man who would hurl against 150 others on a fair green in, Ar- green in, Armagh, in Armagh. But hurling was kind of the air to show his manliness and it was set out as something that was evidence of his capacity and his capabilities as a human being. Um, but beyond mythology, there is physical evidence of a game of hurling being played. Hurley, there's a carbon-dated hurley which dates from the 16th century, which was pulled out of a bog in County Offaly uh, in, in, in the Midlands of, of Ireland. But there is also uh, a hair hurling balls, which were made from old, basically, hurling balls that were used from, made from old cow's hair, which had been carbon dated back to the 12th and 13th centuries. So there's this idea that a stick and ball game has been played in Ireland back, dating back through the centuries for as long really as we have a historical record because in the words of the old Irish poets and in the words of the annals, this collection of texts produced by Irish monks from the 7th century onwards, there is occasional reference to a stick and ball game played. Now, what does this game look like? Before the... 18th century, we don't really have a good picture of what the game might look like because what there are are references to it, but not really in-depth things. So the idea that it was 15 aside with in, in as a parallel of the modern game is too much. It was organised, however, with different numbers according to places and it was played around the countryside in, in, in all corners of the country. Um, and it continued to be played like that through to the 19th century. Now, what happened in Ireland in the 19th century was a combination of things pushed hurling to the margins of Irish society. First of all, there was a change in the political organisation of Ireland. Dublin lost its parliament and the United Kingdom of, the Great, of Great Britain and Ireland was established. And there's a general drift away uh, and a general rise of British culture, which was related also to the fact that the British Empire was extending across the world, becoming the largest empire in the place. And British culture, British fashions, British games were spread everywhere. Number two, the famine arrived in mid-19th century Ireland, which people to the four corners and many more to their death, which destroyed large aspects of local culture. Number three, there was a huge press of emigration in the years after the famine. So decade after decade, tens of thousands of Irish people left the countryside and brought with them their games. So you will see, for example, records of hurling being played in San Francisco 
in the 1850s, in, in, in Toronto at that pace, in New York as far back as the 1790s, there were records of hurling being played. So, but what it didn't do, what didn't happen with hurling in Ireland during the 1870s was that it wasn't organised into formal leagues and clubs in the modern way. Because by the 1870s, you had that happening in England for soccer and rugby and cricket. And in America, you had it happening for baseball and later for American football. But what didn't happen with hurling until the 1880s, until Michael Cusick stepped forward, was the modernization of the game. So while we were waiting for that modernization in the 1870s, the games of cricket and rugby pushed into the Irish countryside and began to squeeze hurling even further towards them. And it was only through the revival of hurling in the GA in the 1880s, led by Michael Cusack, who reimagined this game that brought it into a modern organization through the founding of the GA. Gaelic football. Gaelic football is a game that was invented by Morris Davin, who joined with Michael Cusick in founding the GA84. What was that game? Was it truly Gaelic? Was it Irish? And it wasn't. Because just as striking a hurling, and I should have said this about hurling, traditions of striking a ball with a stick are, expand, are explored all across the world. There is every culture for which we have a significant record in terms of its games had a stick and ball game. The Berbers had it in North Africa, the Aztecs had it, and so on. You can go all across Australasia or, and all across Asia, and you find exactly the same thing across into China. And of course, in the Americas, you had it with lacrosse. Now, with football, similarly, the idea of kicking a ball, folk football, was spread all across Europe, America, and so on. It's, 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 a, it's a basic impulse to kick a ball, appears to be the case. And similarly, in Ireland, there was folk football, broadly similar to that played in other societies. But what happened in the 1880s was the GAA, after it was founded, Morris Davin just set up a series of rules that what he called Gaelic football to compete with rugby and soccer as an organised game, um, organised under Irish rules. But the game was, again, not entirely dissimilar to those games which were themselves in the king at that time. And so what did that codification look like in 1884? So I'm assuming all the rules weren't just written in the one go? No, exactly right. Um, the first meeting in Thurles was on the 1st of November, 1884. But that meeting was was almost, it, it's presented now as kind of this watershed moment. And it was a watershed moment by the very fact that it took place. But in terms of the business that was conducted at it, it was actually profoundly disappointing to the organisers because fewer than, than like it was single digits attended, seven or eight people attended it. There are talk that maybe 13 or 14 attended but the meeting itself opened with Michael Cusack, who had invited huge numbers of people. He read dozens of letters from people who said they were sorry they couldn't come, which must have been really exciting to listen to. But he read letter after letter <laughs> explaining explaining why people weren't there. But the truth of it is, it was the meeting in January. Morris Davin, who was a kind of a famous Irish athlete from the time, joined with Michael Cusick, and he was charged with setting out the rules for the games and writing the constitution. And the GA also took charge of Irish athletics at the time, although athletics 40 to 50 years later drifted out of the association. And Cusick wrote Irish rules for athletics as well. But the, series, the, the story of the codification of hurling and Gaelic football is the same as the story of all games played everywhere, from American football to soccer to rugby and so on. It is the story of constant evolution rules are repeatedly changed and they're usually changed to try and make the game more exciting more open and faster so the story of let's take hurling um and we'll run with hurling i suppose as the as, as the game but football is the same story of 21 players aside on a relatively small pitch with narrow hurleys and heavy ball which meant a deeply physical contest from the beginning the stories of the physical contest were celebrated 
in the newspapers at the time. And the truth of it is that they weren't just physical, they were often violent and games ended in huge disputes uh, as well. Many, many more were played without this, should be said. But these were deeply physical games in which the ball spent an awful lot of time on the ground in terms of hurling. And the final scores in matches would be something like two goals to one goal or two goals to no goals. And in Gaelic football, the Gaelic football had initial its initial rules were uh, included um, a provision that players, if they so desired, could break off and have wrestling matches uh, with each other while the game continued uh, around them and four specific holds were set out. In fact, news of that that rule is no longer in place seems not to have reached some sections of the association. But <laughs> in, in, in terms of the game, it too was greatly physical. And the first, in the first Gaelic football game, there were no score. So they had to begin to change the rules and open the game out. And by the early 1900s, the number of players had gone down to 15 on each team. And as well as in those first games, you could only score a goal. It was like a hockey goal. Modern hockey goals were was, was the shape of it. Modern soccer goals was the shape of it. But they introduced then points posts to allow for greater scoring. And the game began to evolve because of that. All right. So then with the rules being written, what, what did those early years of the GAA look like? I know there was some kind of you know competition between it and a mother, more British version of a sporting organization. Yeah. Yeah. In, in terms of athletics, um, the existing athletics organizations decided they weren't going to just roll over and get out of the GAA's way. And there was a brutal dispute between the two of them. But in terms of the organization itself, it actually, to use Cusack's word, spread like a prairie fire during the 1880s. What it did was it, it offered cheap amusement to people, open to all, and it was organized in every corner of, of, of or was apparently to be organized in every corner of the country and was apparently to be open to every, um, every member of, uh, of society. So um, I, I think it's really interesting to think that this offered more than anything else a magnificent day out to people on Sundays. Because on Sundays, you weren't allowed to go to the pub. For example, pubs were closed unless you were a bona fide traveller. That is, you travelled more than four or five miles from, from your house. Uh, so GEA teams began to travel by trains to various places and meant that them and their supporters could drink on the way there, <laughs> on the way back, and at these games, number one. Number two, music was a huge part of the day. You know the way there is, before major matches now in Crow Park, there is the modern parade led often by the Artane band and in country grounds is by pipe bands and so on. This began as a tradition of bands walking in front of teams of players from trails, from railway stations. The band would come often with the team on the train, pray and the team would pray behind them through the town, joined by others. It operated as a kind of a Pied Piper effect, drawing people to the Gaelic pitches where they where they played in. And often you had would have great tournaments organised where you could have two, three, four matches on during a day with, um, with gambling on the sidelines and music played everywhere. And there were constant stories that the players were joined on the field by spectators who got so excited in the play that they rushed onto the field, particularly in games of hurling and uh, in engaged in the game. What, was, what is also really important is that so great were the crowds that were coming in, all charged money. Nobody was clear where the money was going. So it's partly for this reason and partly because clubs, although they were organising, were not affiliating. Partly for those reasons, both are largely between those two reasons, that an All-Ireland Championship was established in, eight, eight, in 1887 in football and hurling to give a structure to competition that would allow teams both to affiliate to the GA and pay their fees, but also that gates would be collected and given to the central organisation. 
So is that where the, the sort of modern parish structure of, of clubs came from, that sort of initial affiliation? Yeah, the initial affiliation was also to do with the fact that there were splits within the association. So uh, yourself and myself might be from the same parish and we might hate each other or we might be different politically or we might have various divides. We might be, you might be a farmer and I might just be a labourer. So we would set up separate clubs and that could not be allowed to happen given the fact that the idea was that they wanted to spread the organisation. So they hit on the parish boundary as um, the basic divide, which was put in place in 1886 between people. Now, the parish divide divide did never never applied in Dublin. In Dublin, Dublin was entirely different in terms of where you could, you could play, but elsewhere in the country, uh, it was divided by parishes, though not always because there were townlands with teams and there were special dispensations given to other areas. And in some parishes at this, in, this, in these earlier years, there were no teams, no teams at all. And it should also be noticed, noted that although there is this idea that the parish became, was the structure, and it was indeed the structure, there was also the sense that, you know, it was the glory of the parish that was being fought for. And that is true. But from the very beginning, a lot of parishes were more than prepared to take outsiders in illegally, if needed be the case, in order to win matches. So it's it's a kind of not a clear not as clear cut as is sometimes presented. And so this organization, the GAA, it obviously existed in a broader social context of Ireland in the 20th century. So how was the GAA connected to national politics in its era? Yeah. So there's different ways of looking at this. You you have to think about this in terms of the context of the times in which the GAA was forged. So that decade of the 1880s, before we even get into the 20th century, that decade of the 1880s is the decade of land and freedom. You had the land war uh, raging through the countryside in, in real heartlands of the GAA where this divide between landlords and tenant farmers really, really becoming quite acute. The land of Ireland was held in 1880 by about 5,000 families. And there were, the land war was the beginning of a social revolution, which over the next 50 years essentially redistributed almost all of that land around the tenant farmers. But in the 1880s, the countryside was rent by agrarian outrages and by other divides within society. So that's part of the context of this. The other context is, of course, the rise of home rule in the, 18, in the 1880s, led by Charles Stuart Parnell. And it seemed by the mid-1880s, just after the foundation of the GEA, that Parnell would successfully deliver home rule and that there would be a parliament in Dublin for the first time since 1800. And on top of that, again, you had a secret organisation, a revolutionary organisation, the Irish Republican Brotherhood, founded in New York in the 1850s, but agitating now, reorganised in Ireland, and agitating to foment armed revolution in the country, across the countryside, that there would be a rebellion just as there had been in 1848 and in 1867, but that this time it would be it would be absolutely strong. And the, those strains of Irish political life were within the GEA from the beginning. And it is true that the GEA was nationalist in its aspect. And it was nationalist in its aspect, not least in its rhetoric, but also in the political beliefs of many of those people who joined it, but not all of the people. And this really matters. There were many people within the GEA who were not motivated to join the association because it was green. They were motivated to join the association because they liked playing football and hurling. And they saw it as something to amuse them from the beginning. Now, the GEA got embroiled in the parallel split in the 1890s where the Irish Parliamentary Party and Irish nationalism in general was pulled in two after uh, Charles Stuart Parnell fell from grace when he was... Um, I suppose, publicly condemned by the Catholic Church for having an adulterous relationship with Kitty, o Kitty O'Shea. In the 1890s, this meant 
the GEA was laid, the GEA almost fell apart, almost, it almost completely collapsed. And there were just three, three counties really active within the association by 1892 in terms of attending the annual convention. But what the GA was then rejuvenated after 1900, a new generation of officials came into the association. Now, this new generation of officials remade the games, bought grounds, bought Brook Park, and basically set up the modern structure and modern development of the association, the cultivation of fast, open team sports that we know today. But hand in glove with that, they were also more nationalist in aspect. They believed that the, the GEA should be engaged in a project of national liberation, which would involve a kind of an elevation of Irish culture and a war essentially on British culture. To use Harry Boland's, the revolutionary leader's phrase, the GEA would draw a line between the garrison, that is the British garrison, and the Gale, that is the membership of the GEA. So it did, for example, institute a set of rules, which meant that if you played rugby, soccer, hockey or cricket, you could not be a member of the GEA. Or if you were a member of the British Army or the police, you could not be a member of the GEA. Or if you went to dances organised by those organisations, you could not be a member of the GEA and so on. The question is, to what extent were the motivations, the desires and the ambitions of those cultural nationalists and those people who believed in, in, in separatism, to what extent were those matched by the actions, activities and desires of the broad swathe of the membership of the association. And what is clear in the run up to 1916, during 1916 and indeed after 1916 for several years until we get to the War of Independence, the broad swathe of membership of the GEA struggled to live up to the desires of those people and in very many senses had no interest in the desires of those people. And they saw in the GEA a sporting organisation played Gaelic football and so then how about more like into the 50s and 60s? Because when I think of the GAA, I always think of that initial founding in the late 1800s and then like my club that I play with today. But the middle of the 20th century is just kind of a blank period for me in the organization. So were there any major turning points to note? Yeah, there's really interesting things happen. If we take a broad swathe of history between, we'll say, 1920 and 1990, a whole load of different things happened. First of all, clubs began clubs and counties became organized properly county boards ran proper local club competitions in every county in ireland for the first time by the 1920s that's what took place croke park developed itself year decade after decade into becoming a modern stadia with a huge number of people coming through most obviously of all the gea was hugely successful in presenting itself in the media as something desirable a modern sport it was entirely modern the first field game possibly there was one in spain a local a soccer match in spain but apart from that the first broadcast live broadcast of a sporting occasion in europe was the 1926 all-ireland hurling semi-final between galway and kilkenny and radio was used massively during the 1930s as radio spread across ireland and into the 40s it was used massively to spread um the the luster of the association similarly from the 1930s there were short hollywood films broadcast all around america in cinemas which were filmed uh filmed um during that period of the 1930s and the 1940s local tv companies made movies as well about the gea and then in the 1960s the game was glamorized and broadcast on television and during all of this so the gea managed to do two things it managed to keep that level of elite kind of glamorous sport where its main competitions at county level were perceived as being elite sport and something that 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 were you big spectator sports in internationals in rugby and soccer but at the same time 
it was so well run that it offered games for ordinary people in every corner of Ireland. And the story of the modern sporting revolution from the 19th century is the story of an organisation getting in there first. And when it understands, when it establishes the geography of its dominance, it struggle, It really works at that and does not wish to give it up. And that is the story of the GA success in those years. Yeah, in terms of media, I always think of that, um, the film in like the early 60s that Christy Ring made, that was like a demonstration of the skills of hurling. That one always sticks in my mind. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Um, um, it's amazing to see that film, Louis Marcus now, and people can see clips of it on YouTube and various other places. And the, 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 the CD or the DVD of it can be bought on, on online through the Irish Film Archive, have it, and it's, it's just extraordinary to watch a Christy, Christy Ring. If we take the story of Christy Ring for a second, so Christy Ring was on one level is a great example of an ordinary man. He drove a, he drove a lorry um, around Cork, but he was the greatest star in Irish sport in the, from the forties to the sixties when he retired in the sixties um, in his late forties. And Christy Ring was, he was, he was an icon of immense stature. So much so that when hurling was played in New York and when he went over there, he was the one who was put on the magazine Sports Illustrated, the dominant sports uh, magazine in America. And he was described as the Babe Ruth of Irish hurling. And it was a star wherever he went. And so he was the man who was faded on the, the most important professional sports magazine in the world. A film was made about him. But during the week, he drove a lorry and was, to all intents and purposes, an ordinary fella on his own, on, 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 on one level. So ordinary and extraordinary coalescing together in one life. That's interesting, yeah. So, I mean, we're based in D.C. We're an American club, obviously, so we have that vantage point. Um, you mentioned games being played in Toronto and New York and San Francisco. Are there any interesting tidbits that stick out to you in your research about the GAA in North America specifically? Yeah, I think it's amazing. I think I think there are a couple of things that people people should think about in terms of in terms of North America. First of all, there's the fact that whenever Irish people went to to America, from New York, as I say, in the 1790s, San Francisco, all across Boston, uh, up to Toronto, there are leagues from, from, from before the famine and from after the famine. In the 1880s, 1881, 1882, 1883, there was a massive hurling competition run in Boston, for example. For a league, there were clubs there, that was, they played for a silver cup, and it actually was a dispute which ended up in the Boston courts between two various clubs who over whether they keep the silver cup having won it, <laughs> which is worth quite an amount of money. I think it's really interesting that one of the first things the GEA decided at its 1886 annual convention, 1887 annual convention, sorry, was that the following year it would stage what it called an American invasion. That happened in 1888. And that American invasion was an incredible thing. It involves a party of almost 60 athletes, hurlers and Gaelic footballers who went to America. And the idea was it would do two things. It would establish the GA in America and try and draw people in, number one. And number two, it would stage exhibitions and ideally make a huge amount of money, which would help the GA when it came home. Now, the reality of it is that the trip was not a success in terms of money making uh, because the weather was so poor and there was a split in, uh, there was a split in American athletics. And in fact, the GA had to borrow money to go home. Father, GA athletes had to do that to borrow money um, to go home rather than actually make money, number one. Number two, of the travelling panel party of almost 60 people who went, 20 didn't go home at all. They simply stayed in America. But where it matters as well, however, is that it forged the connection between Ireland and America when it came to the playing of these games, which 
um, has not been lost since then. It's really interesting that in the 1920s and the 1930s, as international travel began to become more important and liners began to steam more quickly across the Atlantic, um, a prize for winning the All-Ireland Championship or for, for All-Ireland winning teams was trips to America. And if you are brilliant photos from the 20s and 30s of hurlers from Kilkenny and Tipperary at vast banquets of Irish people in, in New York and in Boston uh, and in, in various other cities around, um, ar- ar- around America. Similarly, the playing of the All-Ireland football final in 1947 in America was a nod to those generations of people who for 100 years since, it was, it's no mistake that it was 1947, the centenary of Black 47, the bleakest year of the famine, 1847, when so many people died and so many people emigrated. It was a, it was a statement by the GA of its connection to the Irish diaspora in America and that connection with home and that connection of home through the games that would not be broken. And you have wave after wave of emigrants who stock up the clubs and the spread of the league and the, and the sons and grandsons and daughters and granddaughters of these emigrants filling out teams in these cities, generation after generation, fielding leagues, keeping clubs going, starting new clubs, doing all the things that happen in Ireland, except remaking them in an urban American context to fit a new age as at times again. But all the while, it's held together by that connection with community on the one hand, but most of all, with a love of playing the games. So that brings us up to like the current day, the history that we're currently living. Um, I know the GAA is facing a debate over increasing professionalization versus its long-held amateur status. So how did that conversation come to be and what does it mean for the organization? Well, the GAA is in the absolute horns of a dilemma when it comes to ideas around amateurism because this sport, as you rightly point out, have largely professionalized in many aspects from the medical treatment behind it to the support that's given to players and the number of people who attend the All-Ireland Finals, the, the, its, its presentation on subscription, pay subscription channels, um, the fact that there are many managers of teams that get paid, the fact that in our backroom teams there are paid doctors and physios, or at least in many backroom teams paid doctors and physios. It is a big industry and the GA itself is a huge network of, of clubs around the countryside um, and it is it it, ha- it has a, a very significant turnover in in terms of its accounts, and of course it has a global network now, which uh, feeds out from Croke Park um, and spreads around the world. the The thing about it is, though, that its basic structure is utterly inimical to professionalisation, because as everybody understands it, you need a certain urban mass or critical number of people living in a particular area. To, in order to, and you need a sizable market in order to fund a professional team. But the GA structures of 32 counties. And if it is professional, it cannot professionalize all 32 counties. So therefore, there are going to have to be um, huge amalgamations of players and teams. But even if that happens, you are left with such a small number of teams playing on a very small island that the scale of repetition between those games as they professionalize would be simply too much uh, to, to, to be attractive to people. If it is um, narrow enough to have Dublin just winning All-Irelands, if you have just Dublin and three other teams winning every All-Ireland, then it's difficult to see what, or two other teams, what, what attraction is in that for people because the ties that bind people to these games are not just the games themselves, but also the county 
structure and then the club structure beneath that. So the structural or, structural level of organisation where you have clubs within a county who obviously cannot professionalise, but then you have counties of which there are too many to professionalise, is utterly at odds with all the basic economics of professional sport. So you have this organisation that is structurally not set up to professionalise, but it's kind of happening on a whole load of different levels within the association at the same time. I mean, that that's... I guess that's something that, that we're living the history of, of at the moment. So I guess oh, we'll, we'll come back to it in 10 years and I'll ask you about it again. <laughs> you, can come back to it in, you come back to it in 10 years and I suspect there will have been change. But that change is going to be really interesting to live through and work. And of course, it's a reminder. It's a reminder when we think about history that there is nothing inevitable about what can happen. The GEA really does stand as the crossroads. The GEA has huge decisions to make about its calendar of play. It has huge decisions to make about the extent to which it wishes to internationalise its, its games and what the meaning of that internationalisation is and what it is trying to do as it internationalises. It's it's, it has huge decisions to make about whether what supports it's to give its players, if it's to pay its players, if it's to pay its managers, how does it, ger- how does it generate income? Does it keep its same structure of county and club? How does it divide up? Does it split Dublin? What happens in 40 years? In, in, in 2040, it is reckoned that there will be at least 1 million more people living in the country, living in Ireland. And of that 1 million, it is reckoned that 500,000 of them will be living in the greater Dublin area. Now, the, 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 the structure of the country is already utterly um, unbalanced when it comes to the demographics of GAA. So, for example, you have Dublin with more than a million people, people competing against Leitrim with fewer than 50,000. The last county to win an All-Ireland Football Championship with under 100,000 people living in that county was Offaly, which uh, managed it with a population of under 60,000. I'm really proud of saying that as an Offaly man, managing to do football and hurling in those <laughs> same decades. But... This is the story of how difficult it is to make a breakthrough and it must be understood in those terms. So hopefully you came away from this with either a better understanding of the GA itself or at least a few interesting tidbits that you might not have known before. In the meantime, stay healthy, stay happy, and keep on hurling or playing football. We'll hear from you again soon.